first off, I just wanted to start with saying that as I prepared this sermon, I relied on a lot of faithful men um, who have gone before me. And some of those men were uh, Henry, Inman, Baker, Sproul, and Christensen. And I am very thankful for their devotion in helping me in the scriptures this morning. This morning, as we continue this progress of redemption, looking at how the Lord has revealed in the scriptures how he would redeem his people, we're going to flip back now as the sermon scripture was read in your presence to the book of Hosea. Back in the Old Testament and look at the first of the minor prophets, this book of Hosea. First, I want to let you know that I think it's important to note that the minor prophets are not minor because they're less important. Or that they discuss things that are not as weighty as the minor prophets. But simply because they're shorter in length when you compare them to the major prophets. That's why they got their name. Many of the authors of the minor prophets serve just as long or longer as prophets of the Lord. But they just simply left us with shorter accounts of their time as a prophet. Hosea served the Lord himself uh, to the northern kingdom for a very large portion of his life. If you'll go to uh, flip back from 11 all the way back over to chapter 1, verse 1 in Hosea, um, the opening chapter and verse here, we see that it says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. In order to understand Hosea's message, we need to understand the context of the book first. Hosea began serving as a prophet of God sometime near the end of Jeroboam's reign of the northern kingdom, which was between 793 and 753 B.C. And he continued prophesying through the reign of those four kings that Hosea listed, And they reigned from 767 all the way to 686 B.C. This means that Hosea lived and served the Lord as a prophet for at least 30 years, possibly as long as 60 to 70 years of his life. I would say that that is no minor feat. He simply only recorded for us a small portion of his ministry as a servant of the Lord. It's also important to note that Hosea lived and served the Lord during a very pivotal time in Israel's history. During the reign of Jeroboam, Israel and Judah were living in a time of prosperity and affluence. King Jeroboam ruled over Israel and practically controlled Edom, Syria, and Philistia. In Israel's estimation, they were living the good life and the Lord was blessing their faithfulness. But, as time continued, that prosperity was replaced by a long period of political, social, and spiritual decline. Which would eventually end in the destruction of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. during Hosea's uh, time as a prophet. And later, the destruction of the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. The decline of Israel and the northern kingdom, according to the book of Hosea, centered around one giant problem. 
idolatry. They broke their covenantal relationship with the one true God. And a whole host of sins were born from their idolatry. How did they get from this time of prosperity and blessing to idolatry and destruction? I'm glad you asked. By breaking the first commandment. You don't have to turn there, but Exodus 20, 1 through 3 says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Many times during Israel's history, there has been the temptation and the failure to worship God alone as the one and only true God. They continually failed to worship God alone in religious practice and in their hearts. But this failure did not take either God or the people by surprise. Throughout the end of the book of Deuteronomy, God, through Moses, explains all the blessings and all of the curses associated with obeying and disobeying the covenant and the law. And God, from the beginning, has placed a choice before his people. If you want to, you could flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 20 and follow along. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 20. It says, For this commandment that I have commanded you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him. For He is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. God's people have always had a choice to obey 
or disobey. But the one true and omniscient God has always known what His people, us included here this morning, would choose. Near the end of Moses' life, God calls Joshua and Moses to the tent of meeting, and God commissions Joshua to be the new leader in Israel. Flip over to Deuteronomy 31, just a chapter over, and listen to what God says about what the people will choose. Deuteronomy 31, 14 through 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold... The days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud. And the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them and in the land that they are entering, and then they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely... Hide my face in that day because of all of the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. Now, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them, and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give them. So Moses wrote this song in the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. God knew and Israel knew their future. God's faithfulness would continually overshadow Israel's unfaithfulness. And as one of the last things that he does for God's people, Moses leaves them a song as a constant reminder of their prophesied future. The great I Am made an eternal covenant with a people whom he knew would be unfaithful to him. A people who are in no way deserving of that love. Would you marry someone knowing they would be unfaithful? Not only marry them, but continue to love them and pursue them and woo them back to you. 
despite their continual unfaithfulness over and over again. This is what God has done, and this is what God is doing for us. This is what God called Hosea to do as a living picture and reminder of how the people of Israel treated the Lord. And yet, He loves them still. In the New Testament, Hosea is known as the prophet of Hesed, the prophet who proclaimed and lived out this steadfast, loyal, and long-suffering love that God has for His people. A people who are in no way deserving of that love. But instead deserve pain, suffering, justice, death, and destruction. Israel deserved these judgments. And so do you. And so do I. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Not just know it, but do you believe it? Brennan Manning, in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, explains what he thinks God's question will be for us on Judgment Day. God's question in his mind goes something like this. Christ will say, Did you believe that I loved you? And did you order your life around that belief? Did you believe that I loved you? And did you order your life around that belief? Not just know that I loved you, but did you believe it? And did that belief work its way into every part of your life? How often do you find yourself considering or even meditating on this Hesed love, this steadfast love of God towards you. When you do consider it, even right now, what thoughts or feelings does it invoke in your spirit and in your heart? Perhaps the kind of thankfulness you have when someone picks up something you dropped and hands it back to you? Some form of basic indebtedness? I owe you one, Jesus. Thank you for loving me. Or are you overwhelmed by it? Humiliated? Humbled? Broken? Are you driven to serve Him with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength? Or does God's love not matter much to you at all? How does the Hesed love of God play a part in your everyday life? To what extent does the Hesed love of God influence your everyday life? What does it take for someone to rightly contemplate this Hesed love of God towards you and then respond to that Hesed love? We must understand who we are who God is, what our relationship 
is to one another and the state of that relationship right now. What defines our relationship? What's hindering it? What are the rules of this relationship? How are we doing living up to the covenant that God has made with us? This morning we're going to look at the book of Hosea to find the answers to some of these questions and hopefully contemplate this Hesed love of God towards Israel and towards us here today. So first we're going to look throughout the book of Hosea to discover the physical and spiritual condition of Israel, where they're at. Second, we're going to look at all of the opportunities, or at least some of the opportunities, that God gave God gave through Hosea his people to repent and turn back to him. And then lastly, we'll contemplate this Hesed, long-suffering love God has towards Israel and towards us as we move through this journey of life. First, uh, in chapter 1 here, actually throughout the whole book, um, in regards to Israel's spiritual condition, I want us to notice that Hosea describes Israel as an unfaithful woman, no less by my count, at least 16 times throughout the book. Chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2 and 5, chapter 3, verse 3, 4, 2, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 18, chapter 5, verse 3, and 4, chapter 6, verse 10, and chapter 9, verse 1. I'm sure I missed a few. Let's expand on this metaphor for a moment of Israel as an unfaithful woman. For Israel to be unfaithful... We have to understand what she was unfaithful to. At Mount Sinai, God made a covenant with the people of Israel. He brings them out of Egypt. He gives them the Ten Commandments. All of the laws about altars and slaves and restitution, social justice, festivals, the Sabbath. And then promises the conquest of the promised land to the people of Israel. The condition that we read earlier was that if they obey, they will receive this promise of God. All of these promises. But if they disobey, they will not receive these things. And what they have will be taken away. All these things were read in front of all the people. And then called God called Moses, He called the other priests, He called the elders, and He called all the people to make a covenant with him. If you look over Exodus chapter 24 verses 3 through 8, Exodus 24 3 through 8. <clears throat> Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Then Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he drew he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made that you that made with you in accordance with all of these words. <clears throat> Israel made a covenant with God and promised to be faithful, but they were not. Over and over again, they broke their covenant to be faithful. Marital unfaithfulness is one of the most deeply wounding things someone can experience in a marriage. To be faithful is the promise of marriage. To have and to hold, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health. To be faithful and to death do us part. Because of no other reason than death are you to break the covenant of marriage. Every part of your life is now bonded to that other person in a lifelong promise to be faithful. God takes the covenant of marriage so seriously that by His standard there is one and only one exception to allow for the lawful dissolution of of that covenant before death. And that is in the case of unfaithfulness. When one spouse is unfaithful, they can be cut off from the covenant. Israel was unfaithful. And Israel deserved to be cut off from their covenant with God. But, even though Israel was unfaithful even though we are unfaithful. God is faithful. And His Hesed love maintains the covenant. So Israel was unfaithful. They forsook their covenant, and from this sin, many more sins were born. Just like we produce fruits of righteousness when we're being faithful, we also produce fruits of unrighteousness when we're being unfaithful. And Israel's unfaithfulness produced much fruit. All throughout the book, we see that Israel had lost their love for God. They lost their self-control and instead loved Baal and sought to please their flesh. They engaged in prostitution, adultery, and drunkenness. They had integrated the worship of Baal into the worship of Yahweh and justified themselves in doing so. In addition to these sins, we see that in their markets, they used false balances 
In Hosea 12, verse 7, it says, A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Children, do you know what a balance is? Do you know what a balance is? It's a scale. And it's used by somebody trying to sell you something. And so it's usually got a stand, and it's got a bar, and it's either got two cups or two plates hanging on it. And with nothing on it, it's perfectly balanced, hanging there. And so someone will take something and put it on one side, something that weighs a specific amount, let's say a pound. And you go to the market and you tell that person across the table from you, you want to buy a pound of grain. So they'll place their standard of weight on there and then they'll start pouring the grain onto the other side. And when the scale is balanced, you know that you have one pound of whatever it is you're putting on the scale. But what if my scale isn't balanced perfectly? Or what if that little weight that I put on that side I told you was one pound was less than a pound? I told you it was a pound, but it was only three quarters of a pound. I sell you what you think is a pound. You pay me for what you think you're getting is a pound, but you're getting less than a pound. Is that fair? Is that good? Is that kind? No. It's deceptive. It's theft. And it's sinful. In the very next verse, 12.8, we get the impression that there were two standards of justice among the people. One for the rich and one for the poor. Israel's rich are getting richer from their oppression and cheating. That verse says that in all their labors, there is found in them no iniquity or sin. So their double standard of justice allowed them to cheat in these ways. And it did not pronounce judgment of sin against them for doing so. Nearly every part of their lives, whether in ritual worship or in the events of everyday life, Israel gave over in some way to Baal. Priests, enticed by pride and greed, engaged in false teaching. The people brought sacrifices and offerings to Baal, and the priests of Yahweh offered them up, and in some instances, even in the name of the Lord. Israel and its leaders had been been enticed by the lust of the flesh and all of the pleasures contained in it. This was possible because Israel had placed things into their lives that they began to love more than Yahweh. This unfaithfulness was not some 180 degree turn overnight for Israel. It was born from failing the Lord in a small way here and then again there over and over and over again. We are much more prone to sin against God in small ways than big. I know you know this. 
In our minds, it would be more difficult to justify a big sin before God. But a small sin? No big deal, right? Tell a little lie here. Cheat a little there. Pretend I forgot to do that. Act like I didn't know. Lust a little here. Envy a little there. Gossip a little here. Blame shift a little there. We must be a people who strive to love the Lord and serve Him. Not just in the big obvious ways. Not just in the outward ways. But in all the little ways too. In the heart. Not just in how we act in public, but when we're alone. In how we think. Even in what we meditate on. One very important lesson that we can glean from Hosea is that you become like that which you love. Whatever it is that you love, that you meditate on, that you dedicate your time to, your will, you will, over time, begin to love that thing or that person and dedicate more and more parts of your life to that thing or that person. I've heard homeschool parents say something like this to parents with kids in public school. What do you expect? If you send your child to public government school for eight hours a day, five days a week, your child will be a product of that system. They will think, they will act, and they will speak just like they're taught. Those children become like that which they are exposed to, what they engage in, where their time is spent. Where do you spend your time each day? If someone could watch the way you spend all 24 hours of the day you have every day, what would they conclude is the thing or things that you love the most? What is it that they would say defines you? What drives each part of your day? Even down to some of the smallest tasks and decisions. Love or hate? Not even blatant hate, but maybe disgust or animosity. Joy or sadness. Peace or struggle. Rivalry. Self-control or self-indulgence. A desire for the next best thing. A new this or that. Safety, pleasure, rest, self-pity, self-absorption. What has your heart? What lingers on your mind? What summons your will? Is it the Lord? Or is it something else? 
If it's anything else but the Lord, you're engaging in idolatry. You are breaking your covenant with God. But thankfully, just like for Israel, because of His Hesed love, God is patient and calls us to repentance. So we see that first, God used Hosea to expose the sin of the people. All throughout the book, Hosea is, is bringing the, the sins of the people before the people. But what the Lord does next through Hosea might seem out of place for a people who have broken their covenant with the God of the universe. Think about for a minute how we function in our society. Think about our justice system for a moment. Someone is accused of a crime. Evidence is presented. Let's assume for a moment that this evidence that's presented is factual and exposes the guilt of the accused. Guilt is then pronounced by a judge. What comes next? Do they walk away? No. Punishment comes next. What was the punishment that Israel deserved? Flip back over to Deuteronomy 31, 17 through 18. Deuteronomy 31, 17 through 18. Here's the punishment that Israel deserved. Says, then my, kin- my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. <clears throat> And just a chapter back, verse 17 and 18, Deuteronomy 30, 17 and 18 says this, But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Israel deserved to be forsaken by God, to be cut off, to be devoured and perish. Because of our sinfulness, we also deserve all of these things. But is that the purpose of God in Hosea? To destroy His people? How about is that the purpose of God in all of Scripture? To destroy His people? To call a people His own and when they sin... Zap them? No. If that was God's purpose, there is no reason at all for Him to expose their sin to them. But for a warning of impending death, God isn't exposing their sin to punish them. He's exposing their sin to hopefully restore them. 
God is telling His people that He is angry with them because He is willing not to be angry with them. Plan A, since the creation of all things, for a people who would reject God was always redemption. God's goal in exposing sin is redemptive. Parents, this should be our goal with our children. After they sin, show them. And then draw them to repentance, to reconciliation, and ultimately, restoration. Let's flip back over to our sermon text, uh, eleven, chapter 11 in Hosea. <clears throat> I'm going to read the first few verses here. And as I read... I want you to imagine a recounting of the love a parent has for a child. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Think about the deep love a parent has. For their child. In all the ways a parent teaches and guides a child. Consider that first phrase. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. How important is walking to our everyday life? If we never learn to walk, how would that affect your life? Of course, Yahweh didn't teach the people to physically walk. He taught them how to spiritually walk. He gave them the things that they would need to move through life in a manner that glorified God and was loving to those around them. And when they didn't glorify God with their walk, He allowed them to walk around in the desert for 40 years. How about that next phrase? I took them up by their arms. When someone is learning to walk, what do they do? They fall down again and again. I think there's a few ideas here that we need to see. One is that when a child falls, we embrace them. We love them. We also see this idea of picking them back up and putting them back on the path, moving them forward, encouraging them, even though they've fallen. But there's this also, I think, this idea that God is propping us up as we walk. Imagine a parent standing over a toddler, holding them up under their arms and letting their little feet take steps all while you're carrying their weight 
even helping them move forward. Remember, Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. You don't have to turn there, but Deuteronomy 29.5 says, I have led you for 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. Even in the desert, even in that punishment, God cared for them, both their smallest and their greatest needs. Verse 4 in chapter 11 says, I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws, and I bent down to them, and fed them. As an animal who is in need of leading with a halter, one who wears a yoke, God leads not with cords of cruelty, but with cords of kindness, with bands not meant to drive us, but to lead us. Lead us in a way that we know our Master loves us. And as He is leading us, He's doing so in a way that eases our burden of carrying the very yoke that we need. Verse 4 continues and it says there, And I bent down to them and fed them. What an incredibly humble thing to do. Think about that. God is bending down and feeding us, sustaining us, a people who sin against Him daily. God humbling Himself is a big deal if you're God. When you think about a work animal being guided by a yoke and cords, you don't picture the one holding the cords as being a humble master. But God is humble. He is long-suffering. And His humble, hesed love is seen here. Paul also describes God's humility. <clears throat> Philippians 2, 3-9 says this. You can turn there if you want. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, does this abundant Hesed love of God for Israel and for us necessitate that the guilty should go unpunished? Does God's love negate His justice? Some people would say it does. I mean, if God is love, then how can He punish someone? If they would only turn from their sin and return, shouldn't God forget their sin? No! God is a loving and forgiving God, but He is also a just God. For those in Christ, the penalty for sin, eternal separation from God and spiritual death, is paid. Christ paid that penalty on the cross. But the consequences for sin remain. Verse 5 says in chapter 11 in Hosea, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me, the the sword shall rage against their cities. Consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Israel sinfully longs to be back in Egypt. He won't let them go. Instead, Soon they will be ruled by Assyria. The sword will come against all their cities. Their gates will not hold up against their enemies. They rejected God. And so He will no longer protect them. Even while entrenched in battle, Israel will call out for help to the Most High. But in that hour, he will not respond. All this will happen as a consequence of their sin. But, even while they endure the consequence of their sin, God will not forsake them. God's love for his people continues on. Look at verse 8 in chapter 11. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Though he will give them over to Assyria, it will not be forever. Though he hands them over to their enemies, it will not be permanent. It will not be unredeemable. Does anyone here know where Adma and Zeboim are? Or should I say, were? They were cities on the outskirts of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they too 
were destroyed along with them. God does not want to destroy Israel. He wants to redeem them. Verse 8 continues, My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am a God, for I am God and not a man, the holy one in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. As it has been since the beginning, God's faithfulness overshadows our unfaithfulness. God is not like a man driven by desire or emotion. And though Israel deserves destruction, God will stay His hand. He is compassionate, long-suffering. It says, a holy one in our midst. Doesn't that sound familiar? Remember back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Look back all the way over at verse 1 in chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Christ is the true and faithful Son of Israel. He paid the penalty for our constant spiritual whoredom. He completely and faithfully keeps the covenant Israel failed to. Jesus Christ, through His life, Death and resurrection brings the final restoration of the people of God. The restoration God is calling His people to here in Hosea. If you would flip all the way over to chapter 14 in Hosea and read with me chapter 14 verses 4 through 9. This is the restoration Hosea prophesied to the people about. I will hear I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like that of the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors 
stumble in them. This is the challenge of the book of Hosea. Every single generation must carefully consider the ways of the Lord. And every single person must make a choice. Wisdom or folly? Discipleship or rebellion? Life or death? Remember earlier when we read Deuteronomy 30, 19-20? I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him. For He is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Do you believe that God loves you? If so, love the Lord your God, obey His voice, and hold fast to Him, because He is your life and what should be occupying the length of your days. Let's pray.